Now, Isaiah 40 to 48, you know, I've been mentioning this for quite a while, um, looking for the perfect time to start, and there is no perfect time. I thought about my schedule and when I might be traveling, when I could start it, and I uh, looked at my calendar and thought, oh, uh, maybe not there because I'm away some of the times I'd normally teach. And I uh, looked at this calendar again, and I just thought, well, maybe start in January. I said, no, the time is the present. Um, let's get started in our study in Isaiah 40 to 48. And some of you may remember when we were looking, we did a lesson through Isaiah 36 to 39. And that was entitled really trusting um, or resting in a trustworthy God and a beautiful narrative there in Isaiah 36 to 39. And I thought, well, what will I do next? And some of you mentioned, why not? Why not keep going through Isaiah? And I do love the book of Isaiah. Um, I've told people many times, if I were to be on a deserted island somewhere or in prison, and they told me, what are the two books that you like to have? I would say the Gospel of John and Isaiah. And you'll even see some of the connections to John and Isaiah, even as we work our way through Isaiah 40 to 48. Um, There's some very lofty things in Isaiah. Um, We get a high view of God in Isaiah. And you might even entitle this series, The Supremacy of God. And as we look at the supremacy of God, we will note um, pillars that are holding up that thought of God's supremacy. There will be parts where we stop and look at one aspect of what makes God supreme. And of course, if we serve a supreme God, then assuredly trust in that God, have faith in that God, rest in that God and rely on that God. That's why we need to have a large view of God. If we don't have a large view of God, what then happens is the issues of life, which at times can be large, they may seem larger than God, but we know that's never the case. But if one teaches a small view of God, a God that doesn't know all things, a God that is not supreme, a God that is not sovereign, then the circumstances of life will overwhelm whatever deity you've created. But it is not the God of the Bible. Rest assured, it is not. And so we want to continue our journey and hopefully all of us can enlarge our thoughts about God. Now, sometimes people say, well, it sounds like it's just a study. It really kind of theology proper looking at God and who he is. And um, absolutely it is. How do we understand this God? See his faithfulness. How do we see his faithfulness despite the sinfulness of a covenant nation that said that they would be committed to him? That God had, who had delivered them and, and ratified a covenant with them, but yet they have been unfaithful, but yet God remains faithful. And to that we should say amen, should we not? That even despite our shortcomings, we serve a God that is going to be faithful to us. I mean, we look at a God, as we'll see in these chapters, a God that is absolutely sovereign. You say, if we, during this time in the life of the church, and this time in the world, if we do not have a sovereign God, then what does one do? I mean... (laughs) If you can't look at what is happening in the Middle East and and north of us and our neighbors in Canada and even in the church today, if you can't look around at the events and say God is sovereign, then I think the only re-scourged absolutely to be anxious, to be worried. But if you realize that God is a sovereign God, then you can rest in that reality. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have concerns. You should have concerns. 
Even Paul, you remember, and he talked about there was a daily concern for the churches, but he obviously realized that God was a sovereign God controlling all things. And so we are the same sort of people. We should have the same mindset. You say, well, okay, sovereignty, um, this idea that God knows all things and he controls all things and he's absolutely faithful to a covenant people. What does that have to do with, with me in 2021? I would say, there you go. You're ahead of me already. Um, Tom, your elder over there said everything. Do you agree with that? Everything. Everything. How you live your life. How you face suffering or heartache. Absolutely. It has recourse for that. Everything in life. Because if you have an incorrect view of God, then you will face life incorrectly. And at times what you will do is rely on self to get yourself through the issues of life or the challenges of life. And I don't want to rely on self. Now, here's the reality of it. If I were to say to you right now, how many of you would agree with me that we should not rely on self? How many of you would say amen to that? You would say amen. You would raise your hand. I affirm that truth. I should not rely on self. Now, let me ask the follow-up question. How many of you at times rely on self? <laughs> well, there you, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the Christian life, isn't it? That we know certain things to be true. We say to ourselves, yes, because all-powerful, he's supreme. I should not rely on myself. What is the point of relying on feeble, finite humanity when I can rely on an infinite, sovereign, eternal God, but yet we still do it? That's called sanctification. It's called growth. And I'm hoping that even as we go through these lessons, we will all be sanctified. We will all grow. Now, let me give you a brief recap, because we think about this transition from chapters 39 to 40. What is happening here? Uh, The first part of Isaiah 1 to 39 is looking at God and the nations. And then when we go 40 to the end of the book, it is God and his people. But what interestingly happens is in 36 to 39, we have a transition. One nation in particular is phasing out the Assyrians. And we see now sort of that we hear about the Assyrians are in 36 to 39. And of course, what happens to the great Assyrians by God's great might, even in that episode, God, Shennacherib comes upon the holy city, Jerusalem, Hezekiah is king, and he cries out to the Lord God Almighty. He goes into the temple and he takes his letter that has been sent by Shennacherib through the Rapshakah, and the Rapshakah is Shennacherib's representative, and he is taunting the people of God. He's even saying to the people of God, why do you trust in God? Why do you trust in Hezekiah? Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. And even he says to the people who are on the wall, he says to them, have any of the gods of the lands been able to prevent my king, the Lord, from defeating them? And he goes to a list of all the kingdoms that have been destroyed by Shennacherib and the Assyrians. And in fact, it was true historically. Why should you now trust that the Lord is going to help you in this situation? No other God has been able to do it. And that's the point. He is like no other God. And this is what we'll see through Isaiah 40 to 48. This thing, to whom will you liken me? It is I. 
I am he. I am the one. To whom will you compare me? And so we can rest in this God. And so what happens at the end, um, Hezekiah goes to the temple. He lays out this letter of indictment from Shennacherib and he prays to the Lord and the Lord hears his prayer. And what happened? We know how the story goes, or maybe you don't. What happens? An angel of the Lord comes and he kills 185,000 Assyrians. And the Assyrians go their way. And here it is in stark contrast, what happens? Shennacherib, Hezekiah goes to the temple. He lays out the letter before the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And Yahweh hears him, and then he gives him a great victory. And then Shennacherib goes back to the temple of his God, and he's in his temple. And what happens? His two sons come in and kill him. And that was actually based on the word of God. It says, you shall die by the sword. So contrast. Yahweh are the God of the Assyrian. Yahweh wins. And then what we're going to see throughout 40 to 48, and it really takes us through past 48. Maybe once we finish 48, you'll say, why don't you keep going? And it'll be 49 to 55. And you say, why don't you keep going? And it'll be 56 to 66. And I'll for sure have more gray hair by the time we finish. (laughs) But then what we will see is that Yahweh is superior. There is no other God like so some highlights even look at 36 of Isaiah the 14th year King Hezekiah Shennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them and he Rapshikar in verse 4 says, Thus says the great king and the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? Notice verse 5. Now on whom do you rely that you rebelled against me? Behold, verse 6, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed. That is, there was this alliance with the Egyptians. and says, Well, you think that the Egyptians can actually come and help you? Or the Egyptians could not. And he refers to him as a crushed reed. And, and he says, even if someone leans on it, will prick them in the hand. And it was sort of an indictment to say they really have no power. They're withered. And that's what happens when a branch is withered. It can prick you, can it not? I mean, when it is flourishing, it won't. It will bend because there's more. So he gives this picture. And then notice what he says in verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? And he is trying to confuse them here by saying, wait a minute. Hezekiah has torn down all of his altars. Um, he is on our side because he's the one that sent us to destroy these, these nations, which is in fact true. God used the Assyrians to punish other nations. And the high places, he's trying to confuse the people of God by saying, look, Hezekiah has torn down his altars. He's not really committed to him. Well, those were not the altars of Yahweh. Those were the altars of false worship. And then he says, verse 9, will you rely on Egypt? And he says in verse 10, have I not come against this land to destroy it? Yes, God sent the Assyrians to take away the northern tribe because of their disobedience. But God is saying the southern tribe, no, you will not. But the day would come, not from the Assyrians, but by the Babylonians. And then he says in verse 15, nor let Hezekiah make you notice this blasphemous statement in verse 15, make you trust in the Lord saying the Lord will surely deliver us 
from the hand of the king of Assyria. And that's when he says, verse 19, have the gods of Hamath and Arpah, Aserphaphan, have they delivered from the, me, from my hand? No, they haven't. And then, of course, as I alluded to, verse 37, what does he do? Hezekiah takes it and he, he goes before the house of the Lord and he prays. And the word comes to him in verse 6, a very important phrase. Thus says the Lord, do not afraid. And we're going to see that throughout this study. Don't be afraid. And then there's deliverance. And then verse 28 of chapter 37. God speaks against Shennacherib, but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in. You're raging against me. You're raging against me. They've come to my ears, verse 29. Therefore, I'll put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. God is saying, now your blasphemy against my people, your threats against my people, ultimately a threat against me, I will intervene. And notice what it says in verse 32, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Why is that significant? The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. So now Hezekiah, they can't withstand the Assyrians. They withstand the Assyrians, but the Lord of hosts, in fact, can. And of course, 36, 185 slaughtered. Verse 38, he goes to the house of Nishrach, his God, and his sons kill him. And then Hezekiah is going to be healed and God extends his life. And now we see the transition begin in verse 39. Representatives from Babylon come in and they show he shows foolishly the Babylonians all the treasure of the Lord. Then there's a huge gap, though, because now what is going to happen There's a pronouncement to to be made. The Babylonians now are rising power, and eventually the Babylonians will take away the southern kingdom into exile. But Isaiah's not alive during this time. So that's why some people thought, well, is this second Isaiah? Did Isaiah this? Um, And without getting into all the detail, I'll just make the statement. um, The traditional position, the best position is, in fact, Isaiah wrote it. There is no second Isaiah. There is no second author. Isaiah is speaking prophetically. He is speaking as if he is there. And is that something that is new for the scriptures? Is it something that's new for a prophet to speak and to write of something that will take place? No, it is not. So this is simply what is happening here. He speaks about a comfort that is going to come to the people of God once they're taken away. And he hasn't even seen this. But he is a prophetic writer. There is going to be a time when God's people will be comforted again. The question comes up, what are some of the most pronounced themes um, in this book? Well, I'm going to entitle the supremacy of God points as we go along. We see that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. We see that God is absolutely a faithful God. We see that God is unique in his holiness. These are themes that should resonate with us in our heart. And the question also comes up, what are some of the most pronounced benefits? I mean, when we study something like this, uh, how does it benefit one? Well, ultimately, we gain a greater idea of God and who he is. And if we gain that greater idea of God and who he is, we can surely trust him all the more. 
all the more. But there's some key words that will help us. You know, over the months that I've been preparing for it, there's a reading through Isaiah 40 to 48 and other parts of Isaiah. And um, I have sort of the old fashioned way, just reading and circling and reading and circling and see words that come up repeatedly. And those words really have some comport. Let me give you these words and let's go through them. It's going to take us a while again this morning, a big overview of what we will study. And hopefully as I go through some of this, we'll look briefly at Isaiah 40 and just show you some of the divisions. And then next week and the week after, we'll start our study. Key word says says. This is so important. Our first word is this. He says. We see it in chapter 40. Chapter 40. You can go to that next part of it. So says, chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, oh comfort my people, says our God. This is the first time that you see it here in this section that is, but throughout, if you were to simply go through Isaiah and look for thus says, thus says the Lord. This is important. Why? Because we see here this divine revelation throughout the sense of authority. God is in fact speaking. Now I just listed a number of the verses. We won't go through them all just so that you can have it for your own edification. I'll include it in our next anchored thought and I'll probably just upload it the PowerPoint with the message as well, but says is so important. Why? Because when we look at the scripture, it is God doing what? It is God saying. So we rely on it emphatically. God is speaking. And if God is speaking, we know that God's words will, in fact, come true. And there are a host of places where we see this idea. He says, verse 1, notice verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. And then if you look over at chapter 41, verse 13, I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will be help. And then if we were to notice, if you will, 42, verse 5, 42, verse 5, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and whose spirit and spirit to those who walk in it. God is speaking. Look at chapter 44 with me. Chapter 44, verse two. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will, all, who will help you. Do not fear, he says. And we see that in verse six and verse 24 as well. Turn with me, go over to, we'll skip a couple of those. We'll come back in due time to chapter 48 because I have a number of words that we need to consider this morning. Chapter 48, verse 10, it says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tested you in the fire of affliction. The fire of affliction. Notice, if you will, verse 22. Notice how this section ends. So he speaks comfort. The first time we see it in this section, comfort, oh, comfort, my people, says the Lord. But notice how it ends. Verse 22, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Wow. Those are extremes, aren't they? Either it can be comfort because you're a covenant people and I will bring you back to myself. But yet for the wicked, there is no peace. 
And elsewhere in Isaiah, it says the one whose mind is is stayed on the Lord, he will keep in perfect peace. But there is no peace for the wicked, for those who reject God. He says it. He says it. Glory. How about this word? Glory. Go back to chapter 40, verse five. Here's the first occurrence here. Glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Um, Verse 25 of Isaiah. Um, Actually, let's just go to 42, 42, 8, 42, 8. He says, I'm the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to grave images. And then also in 43, 7, 43, 7, it says there, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I've created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made glory. So let's pause for a second and consider this. What does this mean? The glory of God. We hear that a great deal. You hear it in songs. People say it. Um, They pronounce it in their praise. Glory to God. The scripture tells us even 115 to us, um, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Of scripture tells us that we should do all things to the glory of God. At times we see um, even Moses, he, he asked to see in Exodus the glory of God. And, and God says to Moses, you cannot see uh, the fullness of me. You can see me from the rear, if you will. And God makes a pronouncement of his glory. What does it mean? God's glory. Now, at times we see God's glory as a physical manifestation or really of his majesty, of his greatness. We see it as a, as a shining light. You would see it in the transfiguration, even of Jesus Christ. You would see it as something that was shoning in the temple, the glory of God. And the glory of God is not an attribute because some would say, well, the glory of God is an attribute. No, it, we might say it is the whole of these attributes, expression of those attributes. So when we say we do it to the glory of God. We do it to his righteousness and to his holiness and to his kindness and to his mercy and to his sovereignty and to his compassion. This is the glory of God. That's why we do all things to his glory, that he would be recognized. And we know that salvation itself Salvation itself is only and forever and has always been for the glory of God. Do we not agree with that? And this is a misguided theology that say, well, God saves for us. No, God saves for his glory. And we benefit for this great eternal plan that God has determined that he would glorify himself. And this is why Ephesians 1 tells us when it comes to salvation, three times he states in Ephesians 1, does he not? To the praise of his what? Glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his And so the whole of our being, the very purpose of our lives is to live to the glory of God. This is why the scripture tells us whatever you eat or whatever you drink, do it all to the glory of God. It's our existence. And what God is saying here, no, no, I will not share my glory, my recognition, my honor with another. It is ridiculous. I will not. I'm zealous for my glory. Fear. Fear is another word that comes up. Go back to chapter 40 and we see the first time that it appears here. 
He says, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, your God, despite your behavior, um, there is a good news, and that good news is that you will be delivered. And think about that. We get this thought, this bearer of good news, lift up your voice. Um, if you were to think about the book of Romans, where would your mind go? It would go to Romans chapter 10, would it not? We are the bearers of good news. How, um, how wonderful are the feet of those who bring what? Good news. And so there will be a pronouncement that God is going to bring about comfort. God will restore you again. Don't fear. Is fear something that people face every day? Absolutely. And eventually when we get to this point, I'll talk about the number of phobias that are alive today. You would be alarmed. (laughs) Probably something right now that that probably is a fear of laughter. (laughs) There's a phobia for everything. And once you get people to fear, they'll do just about anything. And if a person fears, it means that they will compromise. If you fear, you'll be overly concerned. But God says, don't fear. Just like when the Assyrians were literally knocking on the gates, if you will, don't fear. God is with you. Sometimes people get news from a doctor. I know someone recently, a brother that I talked to the elders this morning, that we'll pray for him and it's for his family next week. Don't fear. Last night I'm reading stories of believers in Afghanistan, and the estimation is between only um, 8,000 to maybe 12,000 believers in Af- Afghanistan. And the Taliban, um, armed like never before because of decisions made, and I'll stop there, um, going door to door. Don't fear. The opportunity to, to worship, perhaps openly now, gone. But he says, don't fear. And even if they take your life, don't fear because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the servant, which we would consider even in Isaiah, he is overcome. Amen. Amen. So why should I fear? There's nothing to fear. The living God is on my side. The same God that treated the Assyrians as if they were toys is on my side. The same God that will put has put Shennacherib in his place and put Nebuchadnezzar in his place and Alexander in his place and the Caesar in his place is on my side. Why should? And this is why he says, don't be afraid. And even at times, I'll take you by the right hand. Don't be afraid. You go through life right now. There may be things that you fear. There is no fear right now that someone could show up in these doors with an automatic weapon and shoot me. Now, they may do it, but they may do it for another reason, because they're just some fanatic in another, in another way, but not specifically knowing that we face this every Sunday. We don't have any fear of that, but there are people that do. Here's a nation that's taken away to a distant land, and he says to them, don't fear Babylon. 
And this is why the scripture tells us later on, which we will consider. He, that is a part of a drop that's in a bucket. Now, you need to understand the nations are a drop in the bucket. The statement is not Babylon is a drop in a bucket. That is obviously insignificant. But Babylon is simply a part of the drop that's in a bucket. Insignificant totally. I'm in absolute control. You say control. And this is a part of what we have to deal with going through this These passages control. How can you possibly be in control, Yahweh? We're in a distant land. Control? The temple is torn down. Jerusalem is is burned. How can you possibly be in control? And see what God is addressing here, and I'll give it to you now because the thought has come to me earlier than later, which I was going to address later. This is why he, he places himself in contrast to the idols. Because, see, the people of God may have thought, well, maybe Yahweh was only a local God. So he has no power here, but he does. We serve a God that is supreme, do we not? And a part of that supremacy is controlling all things everywhere at all times. Do you agree with that? And that means everything in your life. So you say, study something like this. It just seems to be um, a bunch of theological ideas and concepts. Oh, no, this is life. These people in exile, it would have been, this is their life. How do we have hope in the midst of despair? Lichen is our next word, lichen. Go back to chapter 40, or just maybe you're already there. Chapter 40, the first time that we see lichen is in verse 18. Notice it. To whom then will you liken me? Or what likeness will you compare with me? Verse 25, notice as it's stated there. To whom then will you liken me? that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. And of course, you see it in chapters 46 as well. Lichen, why is that important? Because what God is doing and what we'll beautifully see as saying, is there any equal? Is Marduk the deity of Babylon? Do you think he's the one that has given Babylon its power? It is not. It is Yahweh that has done it. Was it Nishrach, the god of Assyria, that gave Shennacherib his power and caused it to have such an expansive kingdom? No, it is Yahweh that that did it. If we think through history and all the nations that have come and gone, you see what God is orchestrating every one of them. Think about America today. America, land of the free, home of the brave. Surely we are God's people. (laughs) Really. And you have people that believe this. Um, We are another drop in the bucket. (laughs) That God for a principle, in maybe an unprecedented way, be able to fund missionaries and Christian um, literature and works and things like that. But you're just a drop in the bucket. And your time will come, you arise, and you will fall. Some want to believe that, no, it could be, because we don't emphatically know. Some want to believe emphatically, though, that surely America is going to go right into the millennial kingdom, um, bright stars and stripes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you believe that. And that's surely what the Romans believed. It's surely what the Assyrians believe. The Babylonians believe it. Remember Shennacherib when he went out into his housetop and he says what? Look at all this glory, there's that word, which my hands have what? Made. And it says, oh, today, and his son, 
Today, his life was required of him. And Nebuchadnezzar, what happened to him? Seven years of what? Mm, Seven years of glory. (laughs) Eating the glory of the fields. As he was a cowman for seven years. No, no. America. No. I don't think so. No nation. No people group. History tells us that, but that's the arrogance of man. So people stand in the White House and they make the same proclamation as Nebuchadnezzar made. Foolishness. Holy one. Holy one. Chapter 40, verse 25. Beautiful thought. To whom then you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One. It's the first time it appears in this, but not the first time overall. We'll have to spend some time. Paul, what does it mean that he won of Israel? Remember, one of the pronounced, pronounced thoughts of holiness that we can see in Scripture would be Isaiah chapter what? Six. And Isaiah sees the Lord, and he is the king, and he sees the train of his temple uh, filling up. And there's this smoke, and there's this, this thunder. And what happens? Um, Isaiah realizes, I am undone, and I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. And what does, the God, what does God do? In his holiness, in his compassion, in his mercy, he brings the cold, and he cleanses him. So a God who is, in fact, holy and unique and marvelous and majestic is also God that does what? I will show you mercy. Because no one can meet the standard. The standard is holiness. And this is why the scripture tells us what? For we all short of the what? Glory. Glo- oh, there's that word again. The glory of God. You fall short of his perfections. He is the Holy One, and this Holy One will fight for you because His holiness must be honored. Beautiful idea, but I have to move on. Creator. The first occurrence, 40, verse 28. He is the Creator. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And justice do escapes the notice of my God. So here's their sort of turmoil that they're having. And they're saying, wait a minute. Lord, do you understand? Do you see all things? Justice has escaped your notice. And he says, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. What a great text, isn't that? Think about it. He is the creator. If he's the creator, he is the one, not the gods that orchestrates life. And that's why later on in these past, these chapters, we'll see how is it that I'm the creator, but you're serving a God that's made from something I created, namely trees. And this is what he indicts them. This is utter foolishness. You chop down a tree, you carve portions of it, you use a portion of it to cook your meal, then another portion you make into a God and you bow down to and you say, you are my God. When the creator is here for you. Why would you choose the thing designed and not by the creator, but why would you choose something designed by another creature when you can have the very... But see, this is what happens with sin, doesn't it? 
we don't always make the best decisions, do we? Not at all. I am. I am. Of course, we know the thought of I am from Isaiah. I'm sorry, from Exodus. But here, very important. I am. Notice 41, verse 4. 41, 4. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and I am the last. I am he. The first and the last. Obviously capturing what? Uh, There is no beginning and end to me. I'm an infinite God. The gods that you're serving, you created. There was a time when they weren't. You went out and you chopped down a tree and you created the God. It is utter foolishness that you would worship something that you gave life to. That. And we see throughout this sense of I am. Look at 41 and then um, also verse 10. It says, do not fear. I am with you. I am your God. I will uphold you by my righteous hand. He says, notice, if you will, verse 13, I am the Lord, your God, who upholds your right hand, who says you do not fear. I will help you. And if you were to go through all the occurrences through Isaiah 40 to 48 and see consistent what God is making a pronouncement, I am the one that's there for you. I do it for my glory. I will help you. Man has a tendency to help self, does he not? And some of us, God has a place in a position where we have no answers whatsoever. Have you ever found yourself there? In verse 8, it says, My servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, descendants of Abraham, my friend. But also, servant is also used of Cyrus. And Cyrus would come and do what? He would bring an end to the Babylonian reign. And then its servant is also used of Jesus Christ, the coming one. So we need to understand servant and what that means. Behold, this declaration. Notice 40 verse 10. He says, behold, the Lord God will come with might. Notice chapter 41 verse 11. It says, behold, all those who are angered at you will be ashamed and dishonored. Notice 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. Behold. And it's a statement that says, pay strict attention. Hear what I am about to say. And then notice, behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth. I will proclaim them to you. Then the next word, none are no one. And it's simply a declaration. I won't go through them all. What God is saying, there is none like me. There is no one to whom you might compare. And then he talks about the graven images, these graven images that you want to serve them. And instead of serving me, the living God. And then and the graving images is interesting because the stars, I'm the one that created all the stars. Why would you worship them? The trees, I created the trees. Why would you serve a God that's created from the tree? You think that I'm a God that is localized because you're in Babylon. I still can't be your covenant God. I'm an omnipresent God. These people who fashion these gods are evil. Christ to be paid. Here's a response, though. Here's a response. Stand in awe of a sovereign God. The response is that stand in awe of a sovereign God. 
You can skip. There's a couple ahead. And stand in awe of a sovereign God. We see that in chapter 45. And I'll just make the statement. Because uh, we will deal with it in detail. God's sovereignty. His ability to control all things. Ultimately for his glory. His providence is just. Uh, even recently in a good book. Um, John Piper's providence, as he refers to it as God's particular sovereignty, the details of life. God controls every moment of our being. Let me rest in him. Let me close with some thoughts for you. Okay? So how does orthodoxy and orthopraxy meet? That is, I have an orthodox view of God and who he is, and then orthopraxy, that is, how do I live this out? How do I practice this? Um, and it's this, let me close with these thoughts. Ultimately, it means this, trust God in every area of life. And then let's give you some ways in which we can do it. Number one, we hear faith and we see obviously fear a great deal in here. Discard fear for faith and a faithful savior. This is even the thought from Jesus Christ that we should not worry. Why should you worry when you know your heavenly father cares for you? Number two, Rely on the sufficient scripture to answer the questions of life. You have questions for life. Go to God's word. People have questions for life. Depend on the sufficient scriptures. Number three, um, rest in the reality that God endlessly watches over you. See, the gods of the lands were not intimate with their people, but our God is. Amen. And this is why he says, I will by the right hand. I will tenderly with gentleness. He intimately watches over us, so rest in that reality. Number four is this. Accept the chastening hand of God as an act of sovereign love. God will chasten, Hebrews tells us, every son whom he receives, right? God is chastening Israel. He chastened the northern tribes with the Syrians. He's going to chasten the southern tribes with the Babylonians. God chastens us as well. It's a loving expression. Now, it's chastening for the moment, just as the Judeans would have thought. This is not good. But in the outcome, it makes us more like Christ. If we can be more like Christ, then we should say, God, if more chastening is necessary, I accept it. Number five, it's this. Be bold in your faith, knowing the one who has commissioned you. If I'm a representative of this great God, then I need to speak with boldness. And that's a part of the issue uh, with Israel, because they were supposed to be a light to the nations, and they were not. And that's a reason that God is chastening them. Make sure that you understand your purpose for being here, and that is to be bold proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ. Number six is this. Know that sovereign will directs human choices. No. Every king, every ruler throughout history, every nation, they have moved, they have risen, they have fallen because of God's sovereign will. We have to know that. And that means also the thing that may come from them is a part of God's sovereign will. Because one could say, let's go back to Afghanistan, uh, the pressures and the real... Um, possibility of martyrdom for believers there now, one may say, well, why couldn't we just stay there to protect believers? 
Why do we have to leave? Why couldn't we have wiped out the Taliban and ISIS from the face of the earth? Why didn't God allow that? Then believers could flourish and it would be more churches and more believers everywhere. This isn't the mind of God. Do I have an answer for that? No, I don't. Can I give you what seems to be plain? God uses chastisement to purify his church, does he not? And that's why sometimes, and I'll make this statement, I'm not too keen on, quote, America being Christian. Actually, I'm not keen on it at all because it will never happen. And then when you say, with America, if we just had the Senate, if we had the, the House, and if we had the White House, then what could America be? A bunch of pagans who go to church. <laughs> Lost people who go to church. That's what they would be. As opposed to when it's going to cost you something, when you know that someone may show up at the door with an automatic weapon, or someone may show up and cart you off, and you never see your family again, then you take into account and say, I will serve the Lord. But if it costs you nothing, then maybe you'll just go with the flow. So we should be careful how we pray. That's why, and I'll give you this for free as well. That's why in the past when it was Hillary versus, you know, Trump, I thought, well, this is grudges and um, things that we have. And maybe some of the favors will be taken away. And some of these um, crackpot preachers can't hide behind the White House. Well, God saw otherwise. Because it's going to cost you something. (laughs) God is in control. This is what Isaiah teaches us in every aspect of life. He is. And you should trust him in every area of life. I have a couple more points, but that's a good place to stop. And we'll see you next week. Father, thank you for these words you've given us. Your grace and mercy. Pray that they would penetrate our hearts. Help us to trust you, our supreme God. Amen.